everyone. I'm your host, Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode nine of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly podcast featuring insights and stories from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today, we are pleased to present a conversation with Lion Tree's executive in residence, Betsy Morgan, and the co-founders of The Skim, Danielle Weisberg and Carly Zakin. The Skim is a newsletter-powered media company that reaches 6 million people daily, including the likes of Oprah Winfrey and John Podesta. We'll hear about their plans for expansion and the surprising ways in which The Skim is influencing culture and commerce. Here we go. Founded by two 20-something TV producers, The Skim has become a household name and an addictive daily habit for an ever-increasing audience looking for the latest takes on news and culture. We're excited to catch up with them and hear about the next steps in their rapid growth. Enjoy the conversation. I'm here with Daniel and Carly, founders of The Skim. The Skim is an American media company started in 2012, and it's best known for its daily email newsletter that reaches over 6 million members in 100 countries. Don't let that wildly successful email newsletter fool you. The Skim is a lifestyle. True to their tagline, the Skim makes it easier for people to live smarter. They have a book club, an incredibly useful calendar app, a data business, and a studio and they have over 25,000 Skim ambassadors spreading the word of the company and its content every day. I first met Carly and Danielle in October of 2012 through our mutual friend and Skim investor, Rich Greenfield. Can I read you to what Rich wrote in <laughs> oh that first God. email to oh, me? Oh man. Carly and Danielle are former TV news producers. They have a fascinating business built around the curation of news essentially distilling down everything a 20 to 35 year old needs to know each day to be smart in the world without having to spend hours reading everything out there. A newsletter that isn't about the latest cool restaurant to take a date, but actually helps you with conversation for your date tonight. (laughs) So wherever I go these days, I see people reading the skim on an early morning flight, on the subway, in the line at Starbucks. And when I travel with my girlfriends, it's the first thing they open in the morning. And actually, my friends can't believe they know both of you. That's so exciting. (laughs) So on to our questions. Okay. What happened to the proclamation a few years back that email was dead to millennials and Generation Z? I love this as a first question because I think that was one of the hardest things for us to overcome when we first started the company was that when we went out to raise, everyone looked at us as an email business. They didn't understand that we were using email as a medium to get into the daily routines of this audience and to use that as the best marketing way to grow a company. But I think even taking that statement at face value, I don't think that email is dead. Clearly, we've been able to revive email and use it very specifically. I do think that email is inundated and saturated and people are used to getting emails that don't provide any value in a way that gave us even more of an opening because by consistently putting the consumer first and creating something that was curated that this audience knew to open every single day, that gave us an even better platform to be able to grow the company because we went into a really crowded field where the expectations are low and we were able to build a brand from that. 
I think that the idea of email being dead was just that people weren't looking at it in the correct way. They were looking at it to create an entire business from with the idea of dedicated emails and how do you scale that and do you do other verticalized segments of the same brand. And we saw that happen with Thrillist, it happened with Daily Candy. And for us, our idea of how to use email was not to create an entire company around it, but to use it as a launching pad. And that worked really well. So speaking of extensions, your book club partnership with Target is super awesome. Can you tell us how that came about? Taking a step back about how we even got into books, the key about the skim is that we know what this audience wants and part of it is because we are this audience. So a few years back, it was Memorial Day weekend. Danielle and I couldn't figure out what we wanted to read on the long weekend. We got a recommendation and we we're like, we probably should just tell our audience this. And we just created a new section in the newsletter. We called it Skim Reads. And then we did it like the next Friday. And the author that we featured on the next Friday reached out to us. We didn't know this person. And they were like, oh my God, I was in Amazon's top 10,000. And then you mentioned me and I was in the top 100. So we were like, wow, that's quite a jump. And what happened over time was that we started recommending books every Friday. And we were being told by publisher after publisher and author after author that we were the number one way to sell books to this audience over any other outlet. And what we saw was that books was emblematic of what we do as a company, which is we activate this audience, we move product. And so books is just another extension of how we make it easier to live a smarter life. You know, we're in our office right now, you can see right outside these doors, there are books everywhere. Our audience loves to read, we love to read. And so it was really exciting for us that we were able to really create a great partnership with Target in over 1700 locations with, this was our recommendation. And so super excited, a lot more to come with it, but I think it really says a lot about how our audience looks to us for recommendation. I think also for us, we grew up thinking about what Oprah had done as such an amazing model. And we grew up as such fans of that book club. And we feel like we've seen a lot of people try to tackle that space. And in a lot of ways, our audience was dictating that that was an area we should go before we saw the business plan around it, just by their interest in what we had to recommend. So congratulations on your five-year milestone a few weeks ago. And speaking of Oprah, When you wrote your anniversary note to your board and biggest supporters, you noted that Oprah skims, first family skim, and many of your childhood idols skim. So come on, name names. Who's on that skim list? (laughs) Betsy Morgan first, first 1000. So I think Sarah Jessica Parker was a big one for us. That was pretty cool. Michelle Obama partnering with us on her Let Girls Learn initiative was huge. Yeah, Reese Witherspoon. For me, Leslie Stahl. That was really exciting Mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. Uh, Katie Couric. Katie Couric, also super exciting. A lot of news anchors skim, which for us just is the coolest feeling ever mm-hmm. but Chelsea Handler who's an investor Reese Witherspoon yeah. Mariska Hargitay which yes. you know we are sitting in Munch which is our, our <laughs> conference rooms are all named after SPU characters because we yeah, used to next, write to next it. door is Benson followed by yeah. Stabler so we're really excited to have Mariska skim we have a lot of athletes that skim which is exciting but honestly I think that the greatest thing about it is that we have everyone from you know celebrities to first families to Fortune 500 CEOs, but majority of our audience, you've never heard of them, and they are the influencers in their respective communities. For us, it just goes to show the community that's surrounded the company. It's amazing. Did you guys know that on Quora, there is the question, what is the expected business 
monetization model for the scam. <laughs> Did our parents write that? I don't think so. <laughs> so talk to us about how you've evolved your business model and your revenue opportunities over the last five years. Yes, we have two businesses. And I think it's funny because when you Google us, the immediate first line you'll see is the Skim is a newsletter company. We were speaking at a conference uh, a few months ago and someone asked us, well, are you going to start monetizing? And Danielle got pissed off and was like, we make a lot of money. We like being a little bit under the radar, but we have two businesses. We have a media business. We work with sponsors, really premium sponsors at a premium level through native advertising and activations with our community. We also have a really robust affiliate business about how we move product. And then we have a subscription business. And what the skim is at its core is a membership company. And so subscription and the subscription revenue is huge for us. And so we opened the door to that a little over a year ago. And that's really where our focus is right now from a product standpoint. And how does that marry with your No Excuses campaign? And how did that start and how has it changed since you've launched it? So our No Excuses campaign, we launched around the last election. We found ourselves in a political climate that I don't think a lot of people expected. We've never taken a side as a company. We're nonpartisan. We didn't feel like it was our role to endorse a candidate. And I think that was something that was different this time around. It seemed every company, big and small, media or otherwise, was endorsing a candidate. And what we saw and heard from our audience was that all of this kind of fighting and polarization was driving people out of the political process. They were just so sick and tired of hearing all of this negativity and not feeling like anyone was actually going to solve the problems that they were seeing on a day-to-day basis that was actually affecting their lives. We saw that they were coming to us to really decide who to vote for. It's really interesting about, you know, half of our audience does not identify as liberal. It's really made up of different political ideologies. And that's something that's really rare in this fractured media space, where if you're liberal, you watch one thing, and if you're conservative, you watch another. And to have an audience that is made up of so many different things allowed us to have really interesting dialogue. And that's what we were hearing from our ambassadors all the time. They were talking about, what do you think about this candidate who visited my school? I saw this person at the rally. This person didn't go. I didn't like how this person responded to the skims questions. And so at the end of the day, we felt like our role in the last election was really to make sure that people voted. We didn't care who they voted for, but we really cared that they were informed and that they registered and that they got out to vote. So we launched our No Excuses campaign, No Excuse Not to Register to Vote. That was the first iteration of it. And we were Rock the Votes, one of their biggest registration partners ever. We registered over 110,000 people to That's vote. That's a huge number. It's really unprecedented. And it's I actually, think- if you look at Facebook, what they did and how big their audience is, if you just kind of break it down proportionally, we did more than double what they did. It's what we're most proud of as a company. Um, and I think it really shows the trust that our audience has in us, that registering to vote is actually not that easy. It's time consuming for mm-hmm. a lot of people. It's not that fun. But to get that many people to register and we really orientated our whole company around it. And I think from a bigger perspective, what it showed is that we can drive meaningful action. We've experimented over the years. Can we get our audience to buy a book from us? Yes. Can we get our audience to buy wine from us? Yes. Can we get them to to buy uh, products? 
Yes, you know, we do that each week with our affiliate program. Can we get them to consider people for a mortgage? Yes, we've done that. And then really the challenge was, can we actually get them to get out there and do something that across the board is time consuming and that no one wants to do? And they did it in droves and they drove each other to the polls. We had influencers talk about the importance of voting. We did really interesting partnerships with places like WeWork. We did a huge data dive into how this audience was going to vote why they weren't planning on voting and how we could change their minds. At the end of the day, you know, we had amazing results that I think far surpassed what anyone else was able to do to motivate this audience of women 22 to 34 who are a hugely important voting block to consider really what they want in their future and to drive them to make a choice. Since then, we've tackled other things with the same model of education, nonpartisanship, explaining the issues and then driving people to action. We did it with healthcare, we did it with immigration, and I think immigration for Carly and I was really interesting. All of these really derive because we do a deep dive on the data. So what this audience is feeling, both anecdotal and quantitative, we then did a, a trip across the country and sat people down in groups of mixed political dynamics right after the election and said, we're going to do a dinner. You have to read these articles and we're going to talk about immigration. And it was an amazing experience for our community to sit down. We were in Texas, you know, for one of these, we had people that were Republicans, Democrats, undocumented immigrants and professional politicians or that had worked in the field. And, you know, at the end of the day, it was really what we heard again and again is that people are sick of feeling defined by one or two choices out there. And being able to make their own mind up is incredibly important. And it also sounds like the value of community, the community of coming together and having real conversations at real dinner tables is hugely valuable. I think that's been a defining characteristic of our company. And that's something that I think is really different than most you know, media or audience companies out there is that we can really be there for this audience that is so saturated by so many other forms of media. But when it comes to real issues and real topics, they're consistently looking at the skim as a trusted source. Given that both of you have backgrounds in broadcast TV news, what can we expect to come out of your next adventure, the Skim Studios? Given our background, Danielle and I are very much old meets new. One of my favorite things that's ever been said about us was one of our earliest investors said that we disrupt with love. And I think that's exactly how we approach what we're doing, which is that we believe in putting information into routines and we really have looked to the traditional models and what worked about those traditional models in their heyday and what maybe has fallen off course because technology is different or people's schedules are different in a variety of reasons. And so what we are really committed to is showing up in this audience's routines and knowing the questions that this audience wants to have answered. And so it's funny because when you think about when we started the skim, the only vocational training that we ever had was as video producers. It's the only thing that we knew how to do. And it's the only thing that we spent the longest time preparing our audience for. And so when we think about Skim Studios, to us, that's really the umbrella to audio and video content. We have a lot that's about to come out. So we're very excited to show our audience. I'm excited to see it. What would each of you be doing if you weren't running the skim? Would you be back in television news? <laughs> An intern actually asked us this recently, and I've been thinking about it ever since they asked. I think what would have happened to me is that I would have left NBC, I would have gone to business school, I would have gone back to a traditional media company, mm -hmm. and then I would have gotten frustrated, and I probably would have just joined a startup. 
I probably would have stayed at NBC for another year or two and then left and probably gone more into the political communication side. That was something I always loved and was kind of like the parallel track. And I think that's probably where I would have ended up. So you were destined for a world outside of big traditional media, both of you? I think so, yeah. I remember someone said to me, oh, you know, we look at you and we see a lifer, a traditional media lifer. And I remember feeling kind of terrified. Um, <laughs> like that like hearing that. That like, wasn't a compliment. Like, it used like to be maybe, what I wanted to be. Yeah, it, it was the first time where I was like, oh, maybe that spells stagnancy. And maybe thinking about more than that is actually, you know, making it a choice and not making it a destined path. Why has no one tried to copy what you're doing? I think everyone's tried to copy yeah. what we're doing. I think everyone's tried to copy what we're doing. I think the funniest thing with that, when we see that, it's the people don't understand what we've done. We are not the first people to look at, let's deliver bite-sized information via mm-hmm. email. If that is what people think that we have created, thank you, but that is not what we've done. We are not the first people to see the power of community. But I think what we have done is we created a very unique voice and a way to talk to this audience that really does create information, makes it a part of their lifestyle. One of our ambassadors said it best, which was, when I read the New York Times or the Post or the Journal, I'm reading it. When I read the skim, I am a skimmer. And they self-identify as part of a community. So when we've seen people try to create a bite-sized information newsletter or you know, say, oh, I've created an ambassador program. We're like, okay, good luck. That has nothing to do with what we've built. What we've built is a community that is committed to a mission and we've committed ourselves to bringing that mission to life within people's routines. It's really a tribe. Yes, Yes, it is. And I love the comment of old meets new. Yeah. That's fantastic. Thank you. What's the favorite show that you're streaming right now? I've, I watched The Defiant Ones, and now I'm re-watching it again. I think it was one of the best documentaries yeah. I've ever seen. I'm watching that one. It's not streaming, but we've been watching all of the Princess Diana uh, documentaries that have come out. And oh, those are things. great. The HBO yeah. one. Yeah, yes. I think that's, I'm addicted. that's been really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Favorite podcast? How I Built This. That's what I was going to yeah. say. Yeah, How I Built This. Oh, same one. Yeah. I like that. And favorite summer read, favorite summer book? Um, We just recommended a book actually that's in Target, which is one of the best books I've read recently, The Light We Lost. It is a tearjerker. So highly recommend it. Go pick it up today at Target. Yeah, you can get tissues at Target. (laughs) You'll know it's the right one because of the skin stamp. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you both for joining Kindredcast. Thank you. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Feel free to leave a review on iTunes as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.